Here we're beginning here by the two dots on the top of Ayin Chedam and Aleph. The Gemara quotes from the Mishnah, Mayim Kedeh Lashof Behem Et HaKilor. The amount of water that you have to carry in order to be Chayav is the amount of water that you would add to Kolarim, which is an eye salve that's used to wash out or cleanse the eye. So the water you would add to that salve, that's the amount of water that's significant enough that we would classify it as carrying if you took that water out. Tamar Abaye, Abaye lays down principles with regards to this, that is Mikhte, Komilta Deshchicha Velo Shchicha. If you have an item that is used for a popular or common practice, and something that is not so common or popular, the Rabbanan would follow the more common usage of the item, even that turns out to be a dekula. And the Gemara will bring examples of that in a second. If you have two usages or utilizations of a particular item, and both of them are common or popular, then in that instance, the Chachamim would pick whichever one turns out to be the Chumrah. Once again, the Gemara will bring examples of that. Yayin, when it comes to drinking wine, Shtiato Shchicha, drinking wine is a common practice. It's something that's very popular. Whereas Rufuato, using it as a medicinal part of the salve, is Lo Shchicha, is not so common. As Rashi notes over here, that the eye salve needs a liquid in it to help make it into a salve that can be placed or used to cleanse the eye. And so different liquids were optional here. Could be wine, could be milk, or it could be water. And so what the Gemara is saying is that sometimes people use wine, but that is a less common usage than water because water is cheaper and people are more likely to drink the wine than they are to use it inside of the salve. So for that reason, you have two options with regards to wine as to what's considered to be the shear of wine. One of them relates to the drinking of the wine, which is a common practice. The other one related to the medicinal usage of the wine, which is not such a common practice. And therefore the Chachamim here followed that one that is Shechicha, even though it turns out to be the Kula. Because drinking of wine is a larger Shior than the amount you would need to liquefy the eye salve. And so despite that fact, they went after that which was Azura Banu Batashtiyato Shechicha Lekula. Rabbanu went after the more common usage, even though it turns out to be a kula here. Chalav, when it comes to milk. Achilato shricha, drinking milk, or quote-unquote eating milk, is a more common usage of the milk. Rufuato, using it to be added to the eye salve or medicinal usage, is lo shricha, is not so common. And therefore, azur rabbanu batar achilato, the kula, they follow the more common practice, which is the eating or drinking of milk. And therefore, they had the larger shior for milk, which are the shiurim that we saw in our Mishnah with regards to wine and with regards to milk. Both of those have to do with the drinking of the wine and the drinking of the milk, not the medicinal usage, which is a smaller shior. On the other hand, the vash, when it comes to honey, achilatoshchicha, people eat honey, they use honey in food substances. And rufuatoshchicha, it's also a commonly used for ailments we saw before in the Gemara, that was used for the sores on the back of the animals, and that was the only item that could be used there. So that's also a very common usage of the honey. Therefore, Azura Bonim Batarufuatolukhumra, therefore they set the standard in the Mishnah as being that which is the medicinal usage, even though that's a more the Khumra Shi'ur, and there's just as equal usage or utilization that is for drinking it, which would be a larger Shi'ur. Nevertheless, since they're both as commonly used, they went to the Khumra on that side and said that the lower Shi'ur will qualify in terms of the hotza'ah. Elamayim, what I don't understand, Abayi says, so now I set out these principles, they all seem to work in the Mishnah, except with regards to water. Michdei shtiato shchicha, 
Drinking water is a very common practice. As Rashi notes over here that people drink wine during their meals, but in general, when you're thirsty, you drink water. Rufuato loshkicha. And using it for medicinal purposes is not as common. It's more common to use it as a drink than it is to use it for medicinal purposes. And the way that Rashi describes it over here is because in the medicinal usage, you can substitute the water with milk or wine. I mean, there are other options to use. So then, And why does the Mishnah give the qualification for the shiur of water as being dependent or connected to its medicinal usage, which is what we started off the Gemara with today, meaning that if that's the less common usage, then not, not follow the more common usage of the drinking of the water. Samar Abayi says, I'll tell you what the solution to that seeming contradiction to the principle I laid out is, we're speaking about in the Galil. Rashi here, the Shitato, says that the people in the north, the people in the Galil, were poor. And therefore, they were very makpid on wine and milk because they didn't have so much of it. So they wouldn't use that for medicinal purposes. They would use that for drinking purposes because those were luxury items. And therefore, they wouldn't put it into a salve. Water, on the other hand, which is cheaper, more commonly found, they would use that for medicinal purposes. So for them, the only liquid that they used in the medicinal salve or the eye salve was water. And therefore, for the people in the Galil, it was just as common to be used as a medicinal solution as it is to be used for drinking. And we said before, if two things are just as common, then we go to Chumrah. That's Rashi's explanation here. And that accords with Rashi's explanation back on Memzayin Amar Aleph. But we also had a similar situation where the Gemara answered that we were speaking about the people of the Galil. And Rashi over there said that they were poor, and therefore they used pieces of tilot, were chashuv, were significant to them, and that's why they were not batel. So Rashi is consistent in that approach. Tosafot back on Memzayin Amar Aleph says that he thinks that Rashi is incorrect, that the people of the Galil actually were very wealthy, and therefore he disagrees in both situations with Rashi. He says, first of all, in the case in Memzayin Amar Aleph, says the reason that the Tilot were significant is because they had so much oil in the north that oil or shemen wasn't so significant to them, and that's why it wasn't Vatel, the wicks or the pieces of the wicks that were there. In addition, in our situation, he says, what Rashi is saying doesn't make so much sense. If they were so poor that they didn't have so much wine or they didn't have so much milk, then the most common drink that they had was probably water. And then that once again would create a disparity between the drinking, which would be much more common because they didn't have milk or wine. They'd be drinking a lot more water. And then that would be a higher utilization, a more normal or probable usage of the water than for the salve or for medicinal purposes. So he says even if you believe that they were poor and they didn't have that, it wouldn't solve your problem. And therefore, he explains over there, rather that they were very wealthy and they had tons of wine. In the north, similar to what the Rabbeinu Tam said with regards to the oil, that they had a ton of oil, therefore it wasn't so important or wasn't so significant to them. Similarly, with regards to wine, they had so much of it that it wasn't so significant, and therefore they drank wine not only during their meals, but even when they were thirsty, they drank wine because it was so common. And therefore, the water usage was more common to be used in the medicinal purposes because all of their drinking happened with wine. That's the way the Baliatos would explain it. Over there on Memzayin Amar Aleph, there's a quote in Masoret Shas from the Tosfot Yishanim. And over there, the Tosfot Yishanim says that because they drank so much wine in the north, then they had the problem of Chakalili Enayim, that their eyes were bloodshot or were problematic because of the commonness of drinking wine. 
and therefore they had to do more eye salves than normal because they were so affected by the wine. And that caused them then to use more water towards Rifu'ah because they needed it more commonly because of the amount of wine that they drank. So that's a little bit of a derivative of what we saw from the Bali Tosafot. The Rabbeinu Hanano on our daf says over here that it's because in the Galil, the waters of the Galil were unique. And that is that, me Galil, that are yiduim shmolim la'ayin bikilor. Shehein kemei dekalim shein yiduim shmolim la'yiroka. They were known, the waters in the north or in the Galil were especially effective in terms of being an eye salve or in terms of cleaning out the eye. And therefore, mayim in general is a revit because regular waters or water anywhere else is a drinking substance. It's not used in the eye salve. On the other hand, when it comes to the waters of the Galil, where they are especially effective in terms of being medicinal and helping out the eye, there the waters were judged by the medicinal size, which is much smaller than the revit, which is the size of the threshold for drinking. That's the way the Rabbeinu Hanano explains our Gemara over here. Rav Amar, on the other hand, Rav says the answer is, It doesn't have to be in the Galil alone. It could be in other places. According to Rashi, that means because in other places where they are wealthier. According to the Baliatosafot, it's in other places where they're not so flush with wine. Or according to the Rabbeinu Hanano, in other places where the water is not considered to be so efficacious or medicinally helpful. Kedishmoel. But the reason is like Shmuel, Damar Shmuel, Kol, Shakyane. When it comes to any liquid, Masu, Umetalli. They are good for the eye salve in that they are medicinally effective, but they also dim the eye or cause the eyesight to be impeded because, as Rashi says over here, they harden in the eye and they create like a glue that sticks the eye together and therefore it hurts the person's ability to see. The var, with the exception of Mimayo, if you use water in the eye salve, the masu velometalele, that it's curative, and it doesn't cause the side effect of dimming the eye or causing the eye to seal shut. And therefore, people favor using water over other liquids because it's the most effective in terms of the least side effects with the benefits of its curative properties. And that's why mayim is considered to be rifu'ah and not drinking because rifu'ah is shchiyach with water. Even though you can use other liquids, water is the most effective liquid with the least side effects. And that's why its most common usage then is for rifu'ah. That's the way that Rashi explains it. The Rabbeinu Hanano here seemingly had a different girsa in the Gemara. And he says the following. That kulo shakyane, all liquids, malu visade. They are beneficial in terms of their medicinal quality. Visade. And they also are satisfying. Bar min mayo, with the exception of water, the male begarde that it is effective in terms of its curative properties, but it's not satisfying. Water is not satiating like other foods. But the main reason for drinking it is because it's like it's medicinal, meaning that it quenches thirst, but does not bring satiation to the individual. And therefore, even when you drink it as a drink for thirst, it's really acting or functioning in a medicinal manner because it's simply curing the problem of thirst but not providing satiation as opposed to other drinks which also provide satiation like food and therefore they're considered more significant for their drinking than they are for their medicinal side. And that's the way that the Rabbeinu Hanan explains Rav's answer over here that water 
is always medicinal. Even when you drink it for thirst, it's really functioning like a medicine. Now the Gemara continues, recording from the Mishnah, and says, V'sharkol ha-mashkim b'revi'it. Although they're liquids, their threshold for carrying on Shabbat is a revi'it. Tanru Banan, we have a bright on the Tosefta, Dam v'chomine mashkim b'revi'it. When it comes to blood, or any other liquid, the measurement of the threshold for carrying to be chayav is a revi'it. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer, Dam k'dei l'chol b'ayin achat. That Rabbi Shimon ben says that it, when it comes to blood, that is measured by the amount it would take to paint one of your eyes. Shekein kochlim livrakit, because they use blood when it comes to someone who has a problem in their eye. Livrakit, Rashi describes over here as some sort of growth or wart that's on the eye. Umay nihu, what type of blood is efficacious for solving that problem? Dama the tainagolet bara, it is the blood of the wild chicken. So this wild fowl or wild chicken, that blood was utilized in order to be medicinally effective for this vivrakit, and therefore that dam does not have the threshold of revit, which is the normal threshold for liquids, but rather the amount that it would take to paint one eye, which would be less than revit, because that's its primary purpose is for this medicinal usage. dam the blood is the amount to paint one eye, so similar to Rabbi Shimon Al-Azhar, but for a different reason. Shekin kochlim liyarud, because you use it to paint the eye for, Rashi describes over here, white spots on the eye. It seems to be that he's describing something along the lines of a cataract. Umaynihu. And what is useful or efficacious in solving that problem? Damo dekhrushtina. The blood of a bat. The simanech. And the way to remember Rabbi Shimon Elazar versus Rabbi Shimon Gamliel's position is Gava Legava, the bird that lives in the inhabited or civilized areas, which is the bat, that's Legava, that's for the internal eye, which is the problem with the cataract. Bara, use the wild chicken, or the one that's outside of the inhabited or settled areas because it's out in the wild. That's Lebara, the one that's external to the eye or projecting out of the eye, which is the wart or the growth on the eye. So that's how you remember which dam is useful for which ailment. So now we have a cryptic statement in the Baraita, which the Gemara will then take up and explain. And Rashi and Tosafot differ over here as to how to properly explain this. When is that true? When you took it out. If you store it, then any amount would make you chayav. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Amorim, when is that true? Bematsnia, when you store it. Aval bimotzi, eno chayab elabrivit. But if you simply take it out, then a revi'it is the threshold. Umodim chachamim the Rabbi Shimon, and the chachamim agreed to Rabbi Shimon, bimotzi shofchim the Rishut Rabim. When you take out wastewater to the Rishut Rabim, shashiuran birivit, that that threshold is a revi'it. She had three sections to the latter part of the, the Baraita. And now the Gemara is going to go back and explain each one of them to make sense out of it. Amamar, bamed varim amurim. When is that true? Bimotzi. That's only when you carried it out. Abal bimatsnia. If you store it, koshu, then it would be enough if it was any amount. Mar asks, atu matsnia lav motzihu. Just because you store something doesn't mean you're chayav on Shabbat. The only reason you're chayav on Shabbat for storing something is because you were motzit. So isn't the reason that you're chayav for matsnia because you took it out? So what's the difference between motzi and matzniya? Amar Abaye, Abaye comes to clarify this for us. What is this situation over here 
Bitamid Shamar Lo Rabo. It is a student. A student here doesn't mean literally a student, but rather an apprentice. The way Rashi describes it over here, it's a carpenter's apprentice that's working with his master. He's apprenticed himself to the master carpenter. The master says to the apprentice, Lechupneli makom lesuda. Go clear out a space for me so that we can eat. Halach uvanelo davar chashuv lakol. If he went and cleared away something that was important or significant to everyone, meaning that generally, or by default, everybody would consider this to be something of significance, then chayav ilaveh, then he is chayav for carrying that item. If he accidentally then carried that item when he was doing the bidding of his master, he would be chayav a chatat. Davar sheinu chashuv lakol. On the other hand, if it's something that's not so important to others, I mean, it's not considered in general significant, yatsne rabe, but his master did store something of that size, he would be chayav for carrying that out by accident. If he didn't, or meaning if his master didn't store something of that size, then he wouldn't be chayav for carrying. The way Rashi explains this is that this is an extension of Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar's position. And Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar believes that when a person stores something, as we saw earlier in the Gemara, then that gives it significance. Not only does it give it significance for the individual who stored it, it also gives significance to anybody who carries it out. Rabbi ben Elazar was of the opinion of the view, and that's why we said he couldn't have been the author of the Mishnah in the previous parakas, because he believes that once somebody stores something, not only does that impact on that individual's carrying of the item, but it also affects anybody else who carries that item. Since it's been granted significance by its owner, Anyone, not just the owner who carries it out, will be chayav. And that's what Rashi claims is happening over here, according to Abaye. That here, there's a standard shiur, then the talmid is chayav because everybody carries that out. Everybody considers that significant, and therefore if you carry it, you're chayav. If it's something that is master stored, then that master gave that item significance. And if the talmid carries it out, now he's going to be chayav because of the master's granting significance to that item. Or that, in essence, is Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar's opinion that another individual can create significance and be influential even for other parties or third parties who come and carry it. And the truth is that Abai didn't have to go that way. Abai could have just simply said it was talking about the master himself. And the master himself carried it out. But if he did that, you'd only learn one chiddush over here. The fact that he spoke about the apprentice, and even though it wasn't the apprentice who stored it, but the master, it shows you the additional din or this additional item here that the machshav of one individual can impact on the other individual. And that's how Rashi explains this Gemara over here. Bali Tosafot just asked one question on Rashi, which is, how does he know this is following the opinion of Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar? It's nice that Rashi says that that's what's happening here, but if you look in the order of the Tosefta and the Brayta that we quoted, Rabbi Shimon Elazar's opinion was brought, and then Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel's opinion was brought. And only afterwards is this statement of Bamed Varim Amurim brought in the Mishnah. And therefore, the Bayatos would say it's more likely that the Bamed Varim Amurim is associated with Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel's position than it is that it's associated with Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar's opinion. And the nature of the Gemara's question then is, there's a Matsnia. Someone stores something, then why is anyone else Chayav for it except for the person who stored it? Because there's only one Tana who believes that the machshava of one individual can be influential on the other, and that's Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar. So then when the Brayta says, but by Matsniya you are chayav, 
the Gemara is assuming then that the machshava of one individual giving it or imbuing it with significance then will be influential for others. But that's a dat yachid of Rabbi Shim ben Elazar. And since we left off with Rabbi Shim ben Gamaliel, it sounds like this is the opinion of Rabbi Shim ben Gamaliel or the opinion of all the other Tanaim, and therefore that wouldn't fit. The answer Abayah gives is that this is a unique case. It's a unique case because it's an apprentice with his master. That's what it says. According to Rashi, what was the significance of speaking about an apprentice versus a master? It could be true of any two individuals, according to Rashi, because that's Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar's opinion. One person's machshova influences anybody else, any third party. So what the Gemara is answering, according to Tosafot, or what Abayi is saying is, because this is an apprentice-master relationship, then the apprentice acts always as an extension of the master, as a proxy of the master. And therefore, if the master grants its significance, the Talmud, the apprentice, is affected by that. Nobody else would be affected by it. So it is the opinion of Rabbi Shimon Gamliel that if you are machshiv something, then it gives it chashivut, it has no impact on anyone else, except in this particular relationship where you have a master-apprentice relationship because the apprentice always acts based on the desires or the considerations of the master. And since he's a proxy for the master, if he carries something that the master considered significant or stored and made it significant, he will be chayav for it. And that's the answer that Abai is giving over here as to why this is true, even though nowhere else do we believe that the machshava of one individual can impact on the other as individuals. So then we have the interim section of the Brayto that said, Rabbi Shimon Omer, that all these shiurim in the Mishnah are a case where you gave it significance. That's when you are chayav for carrying it. If you actually carry it out without having any matzniya, then revit is the standard for all liquids according to Rabbi Shimon. So Rabbi Shimon says the default standard of all liquids is a revit. All the measurements that are given by the Chachamim and the Mishnah, only in a case where someone stored it for that particular reason. As opposed to the Chachamim, who believe just the opposite, which is that these are the default Shi'urim for these particular liquids, unless someone does something to undermine that. These are the default Shi'urim for all of these items, no matter who takes it out. So, but the Brayta then ended off with, which is Modim Chachamim, the Rabbi Shimon. Chachamim agreed to Rabbi Shimon that by Motsi Shofrim, they take out wastewater, that the standard for that is Revi'it, and everybody agrees that that is the standard. And on that, the Gemara asks, Shofrim v'maychazu. This wastewater, what is it useful for? From Rashi, it makes it sound like the Gemara's question is a generic question. In the Mishnah, in the Braita, where we mention Shofrim, what is the purpose of those Shofrim? Tosavot over here says that they're not true, that the Shofrim we're speaking about here is in the Braita. The reason the Gemara did not ask about the wastewater in the Mishnah is because the wastewater in the Mishnah, we know what you can use it for. It's water that's not potable, but it's still water that has usage because it's not so dirty. Ever you could use it to wash dishes with it. You could use it for other things that don't need to be potable water, but it's not so disgusting that you wouldn't do anything that's normal usage of water with. But in the Braitha, where the, the first part of the Braitha spoke about Dam, and then the latter part spoke about Shofchim, that's what it says. It sounds like that Shofchim is similar to Dam, which is something that's ma'us, it's something that's disgusting. So it's really not just not potable water, it's disgusting water. And yet the Braitha says that the shior for that type of water is revi. And the Gemara's question about that in the Braitha is, Shofrim l'maychazu, what are they useful for? So Amar Rabbi Yirmiya, l'gabel behem etatit. You can use it for mixing the cement. It's helpful for making the plaster of the cement. You can use that type of water because you wouldn't use it for any of the normal things you use water for. 
But it could be used for mixing of cement, which is dirty and disgusting anyway. Vatanyo. But don't we have a bright teeth? The amount of teeth that you need is Kdela Sot Behen Pikur, which is the upcoming Mishnah, where we'll see the amount of cement or plastic that you need is to make a passageway into the cauldron of the smelter. So that's a smaller amount of teeth than the amount that you would mix with a ravit of water. Mar says, Lokasha, that's not a problem. Had the migbo, had the low migbo. Depends on whether he's mixed it already or he hasn't mixed it. Because a person will not go and make cement or plaster just for the purpose of creating this hole or entrance into the cauldron of the smelter, which we'll see again in the upcoming Mishnah, because that's just too much work for too little utility. So if a person is already going to go make cement or plaster, they're going to make a larger quantity of it, and that larger quantity would require a revit worth of water. And that's what we're speaking about in the Braita, and that's what's useful for the Mishokrim. So that's a large amount of teeth. Once you already have the teeth made, then how much is considered to be significant? That's the amount to make this opening for the cauldron, and that's a smaller amount. So there's a difference between if you were before the fact, there you would only do it if you have sufficient reason to make a large amount of teeth, because it's a lot of work, and you'd only do that if you had usage for it for a larger number of items. Once it's already made, then it's significant when you do something that would be meaningful with it, and that is like making a pi hakur. And that's the difference between the tit that's already made versus the shofrim, which is for tit that has yet to be made, and that's why it's a larger quantity or larger size that we're speaking about. Now the next Mishnah speaks about different items. Some would see chevel. Some would take out a rope. The word is considered to be the significant amount of rope. They let those in the kupa to make a handle for a basket. Gemi, a reed, is It's to make a hanging strip for a sieve or a sifter. It's used for measuring the size of the foot of a young child in order to take it to the shoemaker to have him make the right size shoe. It's a foot measurer. And that's what you use a gemi for. Niyar, paper, for the Rashi calls it over here, papyrus, it's made out of, asif, it's made out of vegetation. It's to write on it a tax receipt that you had paid the toll for the bridge toll, wherever you were going. We're going to see in the Gemara that is two large letters that are written on this item in order to present as a receipt for the taxes paid or for an exemption from the taxes. But someone who takes out a tax receipt is chayav. Now that seems to be duplicative because we just said that the amount of papyrus or paper that you take out is for a tax receipt. And now we're saying that a tax receipt is chayav. So Tosafot explains is that if you write a tax receipt on cloth, on parchment, then it still would be chayav, even though that's not the normal way to write it because that's expensive. And for the tax receipt, you normally wouldn't write on it. But despite the fact, if you do write on it, you're still chayav for taking out that size, even though we're going to see in a second for cloth, there's a higher threshold of size which you need because it's a more expensive item. A more expensive item, you'd only utilize it for something that is significant, therefore the size is bigger. Nevertheless, if you did use it for a tax receipt, you are chayav. Ramban, on the other hand, suggests that maybe when we said was just giving you a identification of size, but not telling you that a tax receipt is really chayav. And therefore the Mishnah says right afterwards, not only is that a measure of size with regards to niyar, also it in itself is a significant item, and therefore a tax receipt 
would also be chayav. Niyar machuk, so the Mishnah continues, if you have something that was utilized already and then erased, then it's not useful for writing on it anymore because you can't write on something once it's erased, but it is useful. It is good to use for a small file of perfume, which are kept in very small bottles, and you use this as the plug for the top of the bottle, and therefore, it's useful for that, and that would be the significant amount that you would have to carry in order to be chayav because of that utility. Or, when it comes to leather, sot it would be enough leather or enough ore that you could write an amulet on it, or some say that you could wrap up an amulet in it. Kalaf, as Rashi says here, is more expensive, and therefore you can only use it for things that are very significant or need klaf. Then it's Kedei Lechtovalav Parshak Tanash B'Tfilin, Shushma Yisrael. To write the smallest parsha in the Tfilin, there are four parshiot in the Tfilin, V'Shma Vayayim Shema Kadesh and Vayakiviecha, and the smallest of them is Shema, and therefore it's a reference to the parsha of Shema in the Tfilin. Dio, when it comes to ink, Kedei Lechtov Bet Otiot. It's the amount that it would take to write two letters. That's the amount of ink that is considered to be significant, like we saw before with regards to writing that the Mishkan had what was considered to be significant was the writing of two letters, because you can use that to pair up different items, parts of the Kli, Krashim, all different things, by writing the same letter or number on two different items. Chol, which is stibium, again, it's some sort of eye salve. The amount that it would take or be sufficient to color one eye. Devek, glue, it's a bed on top of a, seems to be a long, like, broomstick with a platform on the top that they put glue, and they use it to capture birds or as a animal trap. Zephet v'gafrit, pitch and tar, de la sot nekev, in order to make a hole. So this was used, as Rashi explains over here, when you're speaking about raw silver or mercury, it was stored in a small container, and that container was then sealed with pitch and tar, so that it would not escape, and then they would puncture a small hole in the pitcher tar that would allow you to then use it as a dropper to pour out that raw silver, or mercury, because the meaning of mercury is a liquid silver, and that might be what Rashi's referring to over here, that this is a dispenser for mercury. Shava, when it comes to wax, kedelitein alpinekev katan, the amount of wax it would take to plug up a small hole. Harasit, as Rashi says, is crushed bricks which is some sort of clay material. De la sod pikur shall zahav. They have to make the opening to the cauldron of the gold smelters, which they had to get the fire to a very, very high temperature. And in order to do that, they used to have bellows that used to blow air into the cauldron. And so they had to make small holes or openings in the cauldron to allow the bellows to be there to reach those high temperatures for the smelting of the gold. So that harasit, is to make that type of opening on the smelting cauldron. It's to make a tripod or a stand that they put the pots on when they are cooking them. Rashi says it was used as an alternative if he didn't have coals in order to fire up the smelting cauldrons. Sid, the amount of lime is is in order to put on even the smallest of youngsters as a depilatory. It was used as a depilatory for young girls who were showing hair before they were already mature. To make it some sort of primitive mousse that holds down the 
side curls of the girl's hair. And Rabbi Nehemia says it's to take off the hair, the thin hair that's below the temple of the woman, that thin hair was taken off with this seed. So now the Gemara is going to go through the items of the Mishnah. When it comes to a rope, why by rope you're not chayav? Why isn't it used as an item to hang up the sifter or the sieve with? Because we saw that you use a gemi for that. But if you use the rope for that, it would be a shorter amount than making it into a handle for a basket. So why don't you say a rope is sufficient if it is enough to hang up these utensils? Since it's a rope is abrasive in nature, and the sifter and the sieve are usually made out of wood, if you put this rope into it to hang it up, it would rub against the clay and wear it down. And therefore, they used gemi, they used reeds for this and not rope for that, and that's why rope was only associated with the basket or the handle of a basket. Tarabanan. Chutzin, sot ozen the sal, fifa mitzrit. When it comes to the leaves of the palm tree, it's to make a handle for a Egyptian basket which was made out of these palm leaves. So these seem to be the harder leaves or shoots of the palm tree. The size that would be significant for carrying would be the amount to make a handle for a basket that was woven out of the palm leaves that were moister or softer. Sieve, which is the, the stringy, fibrous bark of the palm tree. Acherim omrim, which the Gemara in Horiot says is associated with the sheet of Rabbi Meir. The amount that you put on the opening into a small pitcher or funnel in order to filter the wine. So that fibrous material, if you had enough to create that filter, that would be sufficient to be chayav for carrying it. Ravav, Rashi claims over here, Ravav can either be fat or oil. Tosavo disagrees and says oil has its own shiur, which we already saw in the Mishnah, and therefore Ravav is only referring to fats. De la sukh tachat ispagin ktana. It is amount of fat or oil, according to Rashi, that you would put under a small, like, fried crepe that you would be frying in the oven. Become a shiura. What's the size of this small pancake or crepe that you're making? Shiura kesela. That's the size of a coin, a sela. Batanya kugugeret. Don't we have a brighter that says it's the size of a dried fig? Idividi chashiurahu. A sela and a dried fig are roughly the same size. And therefore that's the standard. Toastwood over here says that if you do do this, you have to be careful because you're making the oven flashic by putting in the fat there. And therefore it has to be something that has a simon in it that the bread or the item that you're cooking is flashic now because of the fats that were put in there. And the fat that's put into the oven has to be a small enough amount that the flavor will dissipate before people forget that the oven is actually flashic now. Anything that you bake in there is going to be flashic until the fats disappear. And mukin, soft items that can be caught in, it could be worn down rags, anything that's soft, kade la salt, kadur ktana, in order to make stuffing for a small ball, become a shiro, what's the size of a small ball? Okay, it goes, size of a nut or a walnut. Now the Gemara continues with that which we saw in the Mishnah. Niar, kade lichtovalav kesher moksin, the amount of papyrus, or paper is the amount for a tax receipt, which again we said was two letters. Tana, kama kesher moksin. What's the size of a tax receipt? Shteotiot. It's two letters. Yereminu. Is that true? Hamotzini yar chalak. Someone who takes out blank paper of papyrus. If there's enough room to write two letters, then you're chayav. Bimlav. If not, then you are patur. 
So the Agmar's assumption over here is that there's a difference in the size of the lettering. And that is the lettering of a tax collector's receipt is bigger than your standard lettering. And so that's the nature of the question. The Raminu is that blank paper is the amount that you need to write two regular letters on, whereas a Kesher Mokhsin is something that you have two large letters on. So it seems to be that there's a steer between our Mishnah that requires two large letters in order to be Chayav V'Niyar, Whereas the Breitah that we just brought says that Niyar only needs two regular sized letters in order to be Chayav. So now we have two ways to answer that. Amar of Sheshit, my Shteotiot, Shteotiot shall Kesher Mokhsin. The two Otiot in the Breitah doesn't mean two regular sized Otiot, it means two large sized Otiot, like the size you would use in a tax receipt. Rava, my Shteotiot, Idan, Ubeita Chiza. In the blank paper, you have two regular sized letters, plus a location or a border around which you can hold it. Dehainu, which is equivalent to Kesher Mokhsin, a tax receipt which has two large letters with no margin or border around it. Rashi claims that the tax receipt needs no border or place to hold it because you stick it in the palm of your hand and you display it in the palm of your hand and therefore it doesn't need any margin or doesn't need any beta chiza. So Rashi says it's an after-the-fact item. It's because the way that you present it, it doesn't need to be held. The Ba'i Tosafot, on the other hand, suggests that the Beit HaChiyazah has to do with the writing of it. That when it comes to the writing of two regular letters, you need to hold the item that you're writing the letters on. You have to be able to grasp it somehow. And that's the Beit HaChizah. The Keshe Mokhsin doesn't need a Beit HaChizah, although Tosafot doesn't explain why that is the case. The Sfat Ahmed suggests that the reason is because the tax collector writes numerous of these receipts together, and therefore he can hold on to some other piece or some other part of the receipt, and then write four or five receipts where he then cuts them out, and there is no margin or border around them. So that's the difference, according to Rava, but they're the same size. One of them has a margin, one of them does not have a margin on it. Meitave, is that really true? Someone who takes out erased paper, star parua, or a page star, imesh beloven shalo, if it has in the margin around it that was not erased, or that was not used for the star, the ability to write two letters, or the entirety of the paper or the star is sufficient, or it has sufficient amount that you can use as a plug or a cover for a file of perfume, then you are chayav. Vim lav, if not, then you are patur. So bishlam other of sheishet amar maishteotiot. What does it mean two letters? Shteotiot shel kesher mochsin. When it says two letters, it means two large sized letters that are used in a tax receipt. Shapir, then that will be the explanation of the brayta that we just brought here as well. And therefore, our mission and all these brayta are all consistent in requiring the same shiur, which is two letters of the size that are found on a tax collector's receipt. That's what our mission says. The other mission that says shteotiot meant two otiot of a tax collector's size. And something over here, on the margin, when you're speaking about two letters, you're speaking about two letters that are the size of letters that would be used on a tax receipt. And in that way, they're all consistent with each other. On the other hand, Abel who says that the bright that we brought down was different than our Mishnah, and the reason is because in the case of the Mokhsin, it's two letters without any margin or place to hold it, whereas the case of the bright that was two regular letter size, but you have a margin or a place to hold it, and therefore it equaled the Hainu Kesher Mokhsin, which is the same size as two letters on a tax receipt. Here you don't need a margin or something to hold it with because you have the erased paper or you have the star parua, 
but you can hold it. And then you're writing on the margin, so you don't need additional margin around it because you already have something else to hold it with. And if that's the case, then the two letters here would be smaller than that of the tax collector's receipt, and that would then be a stira with our Mishnah. And the Gemara says, Kasha, according to Rova's explanation, it would be problematic. Before he shows it to the tax collector, Chayav. Then he is Chayav for carrying it on Shabbat because it's useful to him. Once he's already used the tax receipt and been exempted from the taxes, if he carries it then, it's Patur because it's no longer useful to him. Even after he's used it or shown the tax receipt to the Mochais, to the tax collector, Chayav, because he still needs it. It says, my Benayu. What's the difference between them? Now, obviously, the Gemara is not asking What's the difference between them? Because it's clear that their opinion's different with regards to whether after you've used the receipt, it still has significance. But the question is more fundamental, which is, why is it that they differ about this issue? So, Amr Rehite It has a difference for the tax enforcers. There were these people that ran around checking on people to make sure that they paid their taxes. If they did, they'd haul them in in order to make sure that they paid their taxes. So, Rabbi Yehuda believes that these Rehite Moksa are pests, and you need to get them off your back. Even if you've already shown it to the tax collector himself, these his henchmen or these enforcers need to be placated, and you're going to use the receipt to show them that you're already paid. Whereas the Chachamim believe, as Rashi says over here, that if he believes, he'll tell them that he paid it, or he was exempt from the taxes. And if they don't believe him, he'll go back with them to the tax collector, and the tax collector will say, you're right, yes, this guy already paid, I know that, I know him, he's exempt from taxes. So they don't worry about these enforcers because they'll go back to the tax collector at worst and they'll get the whole thing cleared up. So that's the machloka between them, according to Abaye. Rabbi says the difference is between a major or primary tax collector, Mukhais Katan is the people that he appoints to collect the taxes on his behalf, So then again here you have the same problem, which is that the exemption was granted by the main tax collector, but the people that he appoints to collect the taxes on his behalf, they don't know that. So according to Rabbi you need the receipt to show it to these lower tax people or his hired help, because they don't know about the exemption. Whereas the Tanakama says, once the tax exemption is produced or shown to the main tax collector, he provides some sort of sign or secret password that you give to the collectors so they know that you've actually shown it to him and he's approved of your exemption and therefore you don't need your receipt any longer. The difference between them is if there's a single tax collector, because you need to show it to the second tax collector. You can see that I'm a trustworthy upstanding taxpayer. Even though you're granted exemption from that tax collection, there are other tolls or taxes along the way which you will have to pay. And this individual doesn't want people to turn him into the authorities or cause him problems. So he carries around the receipt to show that normally he does pay taxes, but he happens to be exempt. Even though you have to pay taxes at the second location and the toll there, nevertheless showing them that he is an upstanding citizen is helpful for him when he pays the taxes to the second tax collector. And so even though it's a different tax collector and exemption's not relevant to him, nevertheless, that exemption gives him standing 
and therefore you'll hold on to it. That's what Rabbi Huda believes. According to the Tanakhama, it's not something that is meaningful because he's going to have to pay the taxes to the second individual anyway. If he pays, he'll be upstanding. If he doesn't pay, then he's not upstanding. It doesn't matter that he's exempt from the previous tax collector that he had passed by or the previous toll that he had passed by. A person who takes out a document of debt collection before it was paid. Chayav. If the creditor takes that out, he is chayav because it has significance to him because he can collect with it. And therefore, he is chayav. Mishiparo, once it's already been repaid, patur, then if he carries it out, it has no longer any significance to him and he is patur. Even after it was paid, it is still problematic. Because he needs it. Again, what's the difference between them? It's obvious what the difference is. What is the fundamental reason behind the distinction that they have with regards to a paid star chot. Amrav Yosef asur the shahot star parua ikebenayu. The question is whether it is restricted or it's improper for you to keep around a star that's already been paid. There is a posuk in Yob that says, Altishkon avla. You shouldn't keep things that are deceitful or can cause perversion of the law or problems inside of your house. And a star parua is a risky thing to keep around because it could be that the person will pass away and then his children will see this star that was already paid but it doesn't say anything about it and they'll go and try to collect with it again. Or the individual himself will forget about it and collect with it himself. Or he will intentionally collect with it himself. So keeping a star parua around is improper. So the Rabbana and the Tanakhama believes a sur the show star parua. That's problematic. And since it's a sur to keep it around, it's not useful to you in any way. The only thing you can do with it is destroy it. And since that's the primary purpose, carrying it around is not going to do it for you with it because you can't use it for anything. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda Savar Mutala showed star parua. He thinks that it's okay to keep around a star parua. We don't suspect people of coming back and reusing it. And therefore it's useful to the malved, to the creditor, because he can use it not for collecting, obviously, the loan again, but he can use it as a cover for a perfume bottle, and therefore he's chayav for carrying it around. Now Rabbi Kiva Eger over here notes that according to the Rabbonon, it's a little strange why, even if it's a sword to keep around a star parua, why can't you simply just erase the star? And once you've erased the star, then it becomes like niyar machuk, which we saw at the top of the Amud, is something you can use as a cover for a file of perfume. And so why is it that even according to Rabbanu, so you can't keep around a page star, as long as you erase the star, it's still useful to you after it's been erased. And so why aren't you chayav for carrying it out at that size, at least? Maybe not the size of a star, but at least the size that you would cover. Okay, you ask that over here. The Rashash answers because it hasn't been erased yet. Since it hasn't been erased yet, that is a deficit in this item that makes it insignificant to the individual now because he needs to destroy it in its current state. And that's why you're not chayav for carrying it according to the Rabbana. Everybody agrees. Both the Chachamim, the Tanakhama, and Rabbi Yudu believe you're not allowed to keep around a star that's already been paid. The question here is, the Tanakama believes that if the Love agrees that he wrote the star, he still has to be validated or verified. So Buddha believes that if he admits that he wrote it, that's sufficient reason to collect with it, and you don't need an additional verification. When the debtor agrees that he wrote the star, meaning that 
he is the one who indebted himself to this creditor and he owes the money, do you need to uphold the star? Now, typically, anywhere else in Shas, the word Tzarech Kaimo means with Edim. You need third-party witnesses to come and to affirm that this is a proper star, which would mean that if even if the debtor agrees that he wrote the star and he indebted himself to this creditor, the Malveh still has an obligation to bring witnesses to verify the signatures on the star in order to make it into a full-fledged star that he can collect with. So if you need that, then the star is worthless to you because you haven't been Mikayemit. You haven't verified it with the Edim, and therefore the star is useless. On the other hand, if you believe that you do not have to be Mikayemit, you do not have to verify the signatures on the star, as long as the debtor agrees that he wrote the star, then the obligation is on the debtor to bring proof that he hasn't repaid it, because otherwise the Malveh, the creditor can say, Shtarcha, Biyodi, Maboy. Why do I have this star in my hand if you don't owe me the money? And his admission is sufficient grounds to uphold the star and make it into a regular star. And we don't worry about a Kununya, we don't worry about them colluding to steal from other creditors of this debtor by saying that it was an unpaid star, even though it was a, a paid star, and if we don't require that the Malveh will verify it. Over here, Rashi does not explain it that way. That would be the typical way to explain it in terms of the Kaimo. Now, Tosfot points out, why does it matter that he can't be Mikayim it now, that he can't find people to verify the star now? Maybe in the future he'll find someone to verify the signatures on the star and it'd still be useful to him. So Tosfot says it has to be a case here. It's a case or a situation where he knows he's not going to find any Edim to support or verify the signatures on the star. And even though, as Tosfot points out, he could keep it anyway and say that I want to use it to cover up one of my bottles, and we can't take it away from it because he claims it wasn't paid, this star. The Malva says that it's still an outstanding star, even though the Lova claims that it was already paid back. Nevertheless, the Malva, the creditor, says it wasn't paid. Why we have a right to take it away from him, and why isn't it significant, even according to the Chachamim, who say that he can't be Mikayimit? Tosvo then suggests that once the individual says that he ainly edim, I have no witnesses, vainly raya, I have no proof, and I will not in the future find anybody to verify these. Even if afterwards he finds a dim to verify the star, it doesn't help because he already declared himself lacking any evidence over here and therefore if he brings something in the future, we worry that he paid someone to do that or it's a lie and therefore we don't let him keep it because maybe in the end he will verify it and collect with it even though he's not allowed to collect with it. And therefore, we're going to confiscate the star from him, and that's why it's problematic for him to keep the star. As we noted before, everyone else in Shas, Rashi explains that the Kaimo means what they deem. Over here, Rashi says the Kaimo is by the Loveh. Even when the Loveh himself admits that he wrote the star, he has to be Mikhaim the star, but Lomar lo parati and say that the kiyum comes from the fact that he says, I didn't pay it back. In that case, then the kaimo is not about the edim being mekayimit, rather the lovet needs to be mekayimit. Meaning that if the lovet says lo parati, then the star is an effective star, and then he can collect with it. On the other hand, if the lovet does not say lo parati, the star is not valid star. It is not a valid star, even though the Lovet admitted that he wrote the star, 
because he still has the right to then claim parati. And a pesha sewer, he's the one who says, I wrote it, is pesha itir. He can make the claim that I paid it back. So the question is, do you need this kiyum? According to the chachamim, not only do you need the lovet to admit that he wrote it, you need him to admit that he didn't pay it back. And as long as he doesn't say, I haven't paid it back, the star is worthless because he hasn't been mekayimit and you're going to need a deem to fill it in. Since you don't have those a deem, the star is worthless and then you move over to the balitosofo to say, why is it that without a deem it's worthless? Either because he says, I'm never going to find a deem because he says, I'm never going to find a deem. Not only can I not find them now, I will not find them in the future. Never we confiscate this, confiscate the star. Then that Rebuda believes that as soon as the Lovez says that I wrote the star, we don't need him to affirm the star and say lo parati. Simply, if he doesn't say anything, then he can collect with the star, the malveh, because until the lovet makes a claim of parati, he makes a negative claim, which is that I did pay it back already, then it would undermine the star. But as long as he doesn't say that, the star is a valid star, and therefore you don't need the kiyum of the lovet. But if you don't need the kiyum of the lovet, you also don't need the kiyum of edim, because it's automatically a good star by the lovet admitting to it. That's the way that Rashi explains it over here, slightly differently about the word kiyum than he uses in other places in Shas, but the idea is the same, which is, is the star, once you have an admission of the Loved that he wrote it, a valid star, which is Rebuda's opinion, and therefore, if you care, Malbec carries it out, the creditor carries it out, it will be problematic. Or do we say that even after the Loved admits that he wrote the star, you still need some sort of kiyum, whether it's a kiyum by the Loved, who says lo parati, or kiyum by third-party edim, who come along and testify that they know or recognize the signatures on this shtar, and that's mikayim, val- verifies or validates the shtar, in order for the malved to collect from it, and since that's lacking in this case, the chachamim believe that the shtar is not a collectible shtar, and that's why when he carries it out, the malved is not chayab, because it's not useful to him. If that's the case, what is ad paro o paro? What does it mean that when he paid or he didn't pay it? Over here, the discussion is not whether he paid it or not. The question is whether the star needs to be verified or validated or not. So that's what the Gemara says. Achiyomar lovet parati, velo parati. And this is probably what influenced Rashi to explain it slightly differently over here, which is it's not that it was paid or it wasn't paid. It's a case where he says, I paid it or I didn't pay it. And that's, according to Rashi, the kiyom over here. Because if he says lo parati, that's a validation of the star. If he says parati, that's an undermining of the star. And the Chachamim believe you need active validation. So until he says lo parati, according to Rashi, then you can't collect with it. Whereas Rabbi Yudha believes you don't need the validation, and therefore it would be valid to collect with that shtar. Rav Amar, So Rav says, no, everybody agrees that you have to validate the shtar. The Machlokit is whether you write a receipt or you don't write a receipt. Tanakama Savar Kotvim Shover. The Tanakhama says that you write a receipt, Rebudo Savar, in Kodvim Shover. And the Rebudo says that you don't write a receipt. Rashi says that there was an opposite girsa, which Rashi dismisses because we know from other places in Shas, Rebudo is the one who says that in Kodvim Shover, that you don't write a receipt because we don't want the Love to have to keep this receipt forever, otherwise be under the threat that the creditor is going to pull out the star on him. And then he has now an obligation to keep it around. If it gets eaten by rodents or ruined, then he's going to be subject to be double collection. And Rabbi Yudah says, we don't want to put that burden on the lovet. And therefore, you can't write a receipt. You have to hand back the shtar. And so Rashi says, that is consistent with Rabbi Yudah's opinion. Everywhere else in Shas, and the girsa that we have is the proper girsa. So the Tanakhama says, you can write a shover. You write a receipt. And as Dosavot explains over here, it's a case where the 
creditor already gave the receipt to the debtor. So the debtor does not need the contract anymore because he has the receipt in his hand and he's happy. So then the malfa, the creditor, has no use for the star because he doesn't have to hand it back to the Lovet. On the other hand, he's under the restriction of keeping around a star parua. So then the only thing he can do with this star is destroy it. It's not useful to him in any other way except that he has to destroy it. And that's why if he carries it out, it's not significant because there's no value to the star to the Malveh. On the other hand, Rabbi Uda believes you don't write a receipt or there's no way to dismiss the star until the Malveh hands it to the Lovet to be ripped up. In this case, the creditor needs to hand the star over to the Lovet in order for the Lovet to be able to rip it up and not to have to hold on to the receipt. And if he doesn't return the star to the Lovet, the Lovet can then go make a claim to get his money back. And therefore, the Malveh is incented to keep the star because he needs to give the star to the Lovet in order to keep the money that the Lovet paid him for this indebtedness. And therefore, it has significance to the creditor. And for that reason, if he carries it out, he's going to be chayav, according to Rabbi Yehuda. Ravashi Amar Mipnei, that the love actually needs it, the debtor needs it, because he wants to show it to his other creditors, to show that he's an upstanding debt payer, and that when he borrows money, he repays it. So here, according to Ravashi, it's not speaking about the creditor taking it out, it's speaking about the debtor that's taking it out. According to the Tanakama, you're not allowed to keep a star like this around. Even the Lovet doesn't want to keep a star like this around. And he wouldn't keep it around simply to put it on top or cover something because there's too much risk that if he loses it, that he would be then collected from again. So his biggest incentive is to get rid of it and not to keep it around. Whenever he carries it out, it's worthless because he really wants to get rid of it. On the other hand, Rabbi Huda believes that even though, yes, he would like to get rid of it, it serves him a purpose. And that purpose is that he can show it to other creditors or when he's going to borrow money, he can show it to others that he borrowed money before and he repaid it. And since it gives him more believability with other creditors, or standing with other creditors, he'll keep it around despite the risk of keeping it around that he can be collected from twice. And since it has significance to him, if the debtor carries it out, he's going to be chayab for that. Okay, we're going to stop here by the two dots on the top of Ayin Tet Amaralev.